The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, she's back. We always enjoy talking legal matters over with Ashley Baker, and she has returned. We're going to talk a little antitrust, some FTC, some other related topics with her. Ashley, how are you? Welcome back to the program. Great. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you back. Let's start with some nomenclature because antitrust is one of those things that, uh, let's just call it what it is. The social media buzzword political era has not done that term any favors. People have kind of lost what that term means. It's almost like there's a gap. There's like we broke up Ma Bell if you're of the previous generation, and now it's oh, any company that's huge is obviously antitrust. That's not what antitrust is. Just give us kind of a basic working definition of what antitrust is, or maybe more to the point here, what it isn't when we're dealing things like big tech, big companies, big conglomerations. Sure. Um, so like taking things back to those sort of 30,000 foot level, the goal of our antitrust laws is to deal with monopoly power that's being used to harm consumers and competition. Um, and that's its role as interpreted by the Supreme Court. It's its role from the 1970s and onwards. Um, the statutes that govern statutes that govern antitrust law though were pretty vague. So for decades it was used for just a wide variety of purposes. Um, until suddenly we kind of came about this understanding in the 1970s that it should be used to um, protect consumers um, by you know, monopolies that are abusing the competitive process. Um, being a monopoly itself is not illegal. Um, being big isn't bad. Being bad is bad. It's about conduct. It's not about you know, um, competing to the point that you are have attained the um, monopoly power that's um, explicitly legal, especially according to a, a Supreme Court decision by Justice Scalia, for example. Um, so it's not illegal to be a monopoly, um, but it is illegal to use your power in a way that actually harms consumers. Um, and, and that theory of harm is very um, key there too. It's, it's about the consumers. I mean, harming other competitors, that is competing. That's the whole definition of that's what you do. Um, Europe um, abides by a much different um, definition of um, harm to competition and they mean harm to competitors. Um, here in the US, we've always meant to consumers. 
Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. You just walked through part of the history, but let's not skim over because this is important. A lot of these laws started back in the 30s when there was rampant problems with, you know, monopolies and robber barons and this sort of thing. That is a good function of government. But like you laid it out, what these laws were originally intended in the 30s, we kind of redefined them in the 70s for consumer protection. The Ma Bell thing I referenced, that's that's AT&T for you kids back when they actually did phone lines, not cell phones. Go read up on that one because that's an important part of this story. Is part of this the redefining of the term for the modern age? Because that feels like where some of this problem is actually starting is we're using old laws that have been already re kind of retooled once or twice already. Feels like we're trying to retool them again just for this. And that's part of the problem, too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, every you know, area of law needs to have you know, guiding principles and a specific purpose of what it's you know, what it's used for. And the antitrust has always been a, a backstop, um, really, as you said. Um, much like it was in the early 20th century. And today it's being, there are those um, on the left more so and, and some on the right too, who would like to use it for just these wide variety of things, would like to redefine what anti-competitive conduct is. And they're doing so in a way that uh, is really just compensating for legislative failures. Um, I mean, if you want, you know, wealth redistribution or equality or, you know, any of these other broader kind of loftier goals, then, they should propose legislation. I'm unlikely to agree with the legislative proposal, but then they'd be playing in the right court. But things that you know they cannot legislate, they are now trying to shoehorn into this area of antitrust law. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. All right. Banks, <laughs> they don't show their tellers counterfeit money. They show them the real money, so they identify the counterfeit, right? So let's do it this way. In a perfect world with a perfect government, which we ain't got on either count, what would proper antitrust at the legislative level look like? Because before we start talking about the bad way that the legislative branch and specifically Congress is trending towards, we probably ought to know what it would look like if it was properly done, right? Well, I mean, I, I suppose in a perfect world, which the government has been perfect 100% of the time since the beginning, I'm not sure to what extent we would need this. Because I mean, there are a lot of other broader regulations that create monopolies um, that um, ended up being, you know, back in the, you know, Gilded Age. Um, there are lots of other sector-specific um, regulations that lead to um, these things. So it's, a, it's a lot more, you know, complicated in terms of the entanglement. But um, I mean, I think some good legislative proposals in some productive ways um, are the, so the um, uh, enforcement of antitrust law is split between two agencies: the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Um, they both have. Um, enforcement authority over mergers and acquisitions, for example, it doesn't make sense to put that in two different agencies. We've had issues where we've had two different government agencies litigating against each other in court as recently as a couple of years ago, which um, should never happen um, and is kind of slightly embarrassing. Um, so, you know, streamlining those processes um, and those procedures, I, th I think, could go a long way. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. This gets us into what's going on at the FTC right now, the Federal Trade Commission, because like you just said, these are powerful regulations. Who's watching the watchers is really kind of an issue here, isn't it? Because And we understand presidential administrations come and go. These administrations do answer the president. We currently have Joe Biden, who's a very old school, big labor, big labor stuff with his you know politics. So we knew kind of what was going to be coming here. We have this situation with Ms. Khan, who's leading the FTC. We have this resignation by this uh, Christine Wilson person, and we'll get into the piece here in a minute. But this all, the reason we do all that buildup to get to that is 
who's watching the watchers, who's doing this regulation, because like you said, the legislation is only one part of this. The bureaucracy of government chugs along regardless of what the legislation does. And, and that's what gets to the heart of this FTC stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. I do think that is one of the core questions, like one of the core legal questions, too, is who is the Federal Trade Commission and similar independent agencies, who are they accountable to? Um, so the court and Humphrey's executor said the president doesn't have removal power over uh, members of the Federal Trade Commission because it has this function that they categorize as being kind of special and that it's quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial um, and has this deliberative process and has a multi-member um, five-person head, and now it seems that they, you know, are not under the control of Congress. Um, they certainly can't be reined by Congress. Um, they are circumventing courts actively by bringing their own cases in their own administrative courts, and then they're not really accountable to the president either necessarily, but also they are very much exercising what you would categorize as executive power and enforcement power. Yeah. So let's talk about what actually happened. It's very interesting. Um, this Christine Wilson, who was an appointee of the previous holdover from the previous administration, she resigned. It's really interesting when you actually read what she wrote, and we'll link to the pieces that she wrote here in the Wall Street Journal. But she actually says this isn't something that she disagrees on the antitrust policy. They actually have a lot of agreement, even though they have some other disagreement. She's saying, I agree with the antitrust policies. I don't like how they're being implemented. I don't like the lack of transparency. And I don't like, and she used this term over and over again, this is her term, the due process that this current regime is doing. That kind of is telling to me where they're saying like, look, I don't actually disagree with what you're doing. I disagree with how you're doing it. Or at least saying that um, what you're doing is um, a reasonable area of disagreement um, if there were safeguards that we would normally have, such as respect for due process and um, transparency and abiding by just norms and standards. And I, I think we've seen those really very much go out the window. Um, one, one thing uh, you mentioned that she's a holdover, so they'd be clear about how the, the agency works. Um, there's no more than three commissioners of the same party um, and five commissioners total. So even if there's a Democrat in the White House, they're supposed to fill those Republican seats. Um, Interestingly enough, I, we have two vacancies right now. Um, one as of initial one as of yesterday, um, and are about to have a three-member Democratic commission. So you have an entirely one-sided commission um, expected to enforce these laws and expected to do so too internally. They have these things called Part Three proceedings, um, which means that they can either um, take their cases if they're challenging murder or acquisition, they can take it to federal court in front of an Article Three judge, um, which is like what I think they should always do, um, or they can take it inside of their own courts with an administrative law judge, in which the process is very much less transparent. The Department of Justice, by the way, on the other hand, they can only take cases to federal court. Um, I, I think that's the way to go, and I think. Um, it makes sense to kind of consolidate things under the DOJ to solve that problem. Um, but yes, there, there's certainly been a lack of transparency. We had one um, former commissioner who's now um, head of the CFPB for Biden, who was um, at the time a commissioner, Murhit um, Chopra, and he, on his way out of um, leaving the FTC as a commissioner, as he was already had the already been confirmed to the CFPB, left votes for like 
he was still voting at the commission for like two weeks after he had left the commission um, through some procedures that they would not make fully transparent. So that's one example. Um, they were calling these the zombie votes um, because he's you know, not there. Um, where are these coming from? And then there's also an issue with, um, there's this backlash. And I think this is a broader trend too, is that there is a broader due process crisis, whether that's about like, you know, representing unpopular litigants used to be something that um, was acceptable for everyone on all sides of the spectrum to do. Um, now you have like, for example, um, Paul Clement and the issue with his law firm not um, allowing um, Second Amendment cases um, and leaving the law firm, like who you represent uh, or who you, it, it shouldn't be about the client and it should be about the um, party that is on the correct side of the law. And in one specific instance recently, um, Lena Khan, for example, she had worked as a congressional aide to um, the House Judiciary Committee Democrats in crafting this report that was very much meant to go after some of the companies that now she is going after as um, head of the FTC. Um, and pushing back for that on just the grounds of due process was um, seems to be problematic enough to the majority, current majority at the FTC that Commissioner Wilson's um, dissenting statement on that was almost entirely redacted. Um, not because it was confidential information, um, specifically, but just because it would have been embarrassing that they look like they're, you know, the judge, the jury, the executioner, and at this point they are. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Ashley Baker joining us. Everything you just said, you listed through all the different processes. You listed the fact that there's commissioners inside of the FTC. We talked about the legislative branch not doing their job affects how the regulators have to do their job. This dissent letter and resignation letter, the opinion piece part of it anyway, that went in the Wall Street Journal that we're going to link to, do read it all for yourself. She references a Supreme Court decision recently, West Virginia versus EPA, which is a major decision in how that affected how the organization and the regulation changed again and whether it was in line with that to say this is a lot of intricate parts you just laid out all that we live in a country where something like 60 percent of the country can't name the three branches of government how are we going to have accountability this is one agency there's dozens and dozens of these agencies that all have their own little byzantine rules and how they affect but that's how we're governed how are we going to have accountability? How do you shine light on something when people don't even understand that these agencies probably A, exist or B, all the intricacies of them? 
this is really hard stuff to communicate before you even get to the policies of making it better, isn't it? It is, um, absolutely, and especially considering how far things have moved in decades, um, you know, away from the law or away from the text of the Constitution in terms of, um, you know, interpretation of agency authority. Um, and kind of now that this court is kind of getting it back to what the text meant it to be, um, now suddenly that's a huge you know, problem for a lot of people, particularly those in the media. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. There's another bit in this, and it came up in the resignation letter, and it's come up in other antitrust. Uh, look, this is where antitrust is right now, especially in the congressional hearings that we're following right now. She specifically mentions Meta, which is, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Zuckerberg, all this. We know because they've been there, you know, Meta, Facebook has spent millions of dollars in lobbying. They've had more than their share of people testifying before Congress. They have deep, deep ties to legislators now antitrust and big tech that's going to be the antitrust fight that is in the news media and in our headlines give us something to follow beyond the buzzwords because we already talked about how antitrust the terms getting abused this is probably how people are going to see it in their news feeds going forward give them a couple things to kind of pick out like okay this i need to pay attention to and this is just noise sure um and you're right. One thing about what you said about Meta, for example, um, I would like to point out, though, that the other side does the same thing. Um, there are lobbyists on the other side, and it's the right of both sides to be able to petition the government. Um, that's you know how this is supposed to work, and it's up to individuals to sort out between you know what's um, biased because of where it's coming from, um, or and what's um, you know kind of more more straightforward and kind of cut through the noise there, as you like to say. Um, so some of the issues that are, are on the horizon. Um, um, well, there, there are quite a few things. So it's mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, this um, rulemaking regarding non-compete agreements. And this isn't antitrust, by the way. This is under um, very much newfound authority that the um, FTC, in my opinion, does not have, and in many people's opinions does not have, but they have finally, they have found somewhere hiding inside the statutes and, you know, some unknown place to um, regulate non-competes in a way that essentially bans them across all sectors of the economy um, and also retroactively bans the contractual agreements that already apply to workers. This affects like 40% of American workers. Um, it, that's a lot. Um, and, you know, what industries are using them and at what level of, you know, management versus, you know, lower salaried workers makes a huge difference. It's always been left to the states. But, I mean, more than anything, it is something that they just suddenly discover they had the power to do, supposedly. Um, they've reinterpreted um, the underlying statutes for the FTC, the um, Section 5, to mean a lot of things that are really just adjectives, um, like things that are, um, they had a policy statement in, in November that laid out um, these violations being things that you know, violate the spirit of antitrust laws or whatever, like whatever that means. Um, that can mean anything. Um, so just kind of the moving away from the statute, because the courts aren't really going to like this at all. Um, I mean, Regardless of who appointed the judge, I think they're doing some things that the court is very much not going to like, um, particularly when it comes to just trying to circumvent judicial review, which is something that judges tend to not really care much for either. Um, so, so we'll see. There, there are a lot of cases in the pipeline.
Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. This is a little bit of a broader question, but I want to tie some recent news all in because it's all the same problem of, you know, the government and the government regulators and the law and the collision of those three things, because that's really the core issue going on here. Let's back up a little bit. We know that the government has its own self-interest. We know that the companies have their own self-interest. Where's this leaving the public and the workers? Because like we saw with the railroad thing where the Biden administration, which is a pro-labor, big pro-labor administration, came in and basically crushed a sitting union and going, no, you're going to take this deal whether you like it or not. When we start dealing with things like antitrust, we start dealing with things like labor. It really feels like there's a little bit of a change going on here where people are recognizing the government, even if you're for unions, even if you're for labor protections, the government's going to win all those fights. How do we communicate that? Because that seems to be not just an issue, but also an opportunity to kind of reframe how we've thought about things like labor and labor rights for the last 50, 60 years. Sure. And it's a bit more complicated um, when, it, when it comes to, to labor. There are, for example, exemptions to antitrust laws that um, kind of um, lead to some of these issues. But like taking that kind of in a broader, much broader context and not just um, labor, the ruling government isn't to make sure that the government always wins. Um, I mean, it's more important to in our system to uphold the um, core uh, principles of due process um, and to make sure that this is a fair process and to enforce the laws that are on the books, but not in a way that the government always wins. Um, there's actually a Supreme Court decision from the 1970s. Justice Potter Stewart says um, this was the time in which people didn't really quite understand what antitrust law was going to be used for, no one on either side. And he says um, the only thing that's clear about um, the section to the Clayton Act, which is the um, that one of the main underlying um, statutes of um, antitrust law is that the government always wins. That's the sole consistency is the government always wins. So that's, you know, our system though is supposed to protect both sides. I mean, that is kind of the foundations of our democracy and our constitution. Yeah, Ashley Baker. Okay, the more important question, when we're dealing with monopoly and monopoly specifically, as somebody that studies law and legal things, what's your go-to monopoly piece when you're playing monopoly? Gosh, I always hated that game. Actually, it was just it goes on for too long. It, like I haven't played it in many, many years. I don't. I don't remember. I think I like the little dog. I mean, I like dogs, so I'll go with that. So you have a bias against Monopoly on multiple levels here. It's just uneventful. As a board game, it's. It I do is. have a bias against that. Yes. All right. Well, what board game would you play that fits into your uh, priors? <laughs> I'm gonna sound like a really boring person, and you're just like I don't play games. Just kidding. No, um, I like when I was a kid. Let's see, I liked Clue, but Clue's I mean great that's not great. That's a Clue, a murder game, <laughs> like fits into my priors. Um, awesome. I, I don't know like how to you know assess board games or fitting in with your priors. Um, I was never much of a board game player. I have this unified theory I need to write up sometime about how playing Clue back in the 80s and 90s gave rise to the modern true crime movement, but we'll get into that some other time. Uh, Ashley Baker, always enjoy talking through these things. Hey, this is heavy stuff. We got to end on a little bit of a light note for a change. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, all the work that you do, especially with the Committee for Justice. You also work with Allied Antitrust, which is what we were talking about today. We've had you on before about the Supreme Court. You wear a lot of hats. Let folks know where they can keep up with you as you switch between them. Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter um, and my, my handles and Ashley says, 
Um, and, or you can find me on the Committee for Justice website or my project um, that Andrew just mentioned, the Alliance for Antitrust, which is a coalition um, of over two dozen conservative groups that are advocating for um, the you know, basic foundations um, of antitrust laws as articulated by Robert Bork. Um, and also on the Federal Society blog from time to time, but mostly on Twitter and on my organization's website. Yeah, Ashley Baker, we always enjoy talking to you. We will continue to do so because there's going to be some really important regulatory and legal stuff coming up in the days ahead. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk again soon, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Oh, uh, everybody heard Dell. All right, let's have a little fun. We talk movies, we talk culture. We go to the Mendez Movie Report. That's his excellent Substack that I know you have subscribed to. If you don't, go do that as soon as we're done talking here. Luis Mendez, our good friend, double board certified critic. How are you, sir? Well, doing better now because <clears throat> healing up from COVID that I had this past week. But in less than two weeks, it's going to be my birthday weekend and Oscar weekend. So that's going to be big. Yeah, big doings all the way around. Okay. You're always talking to us about movies and such. We had the SAG Awards, which are kind of important. It's an important milestone in the awards season. That is not 
an indictment on the participants and the amount of plastic surgery they had. Those SAG stands for Screen Actors Guild. This is kind of an important one. So for people that aren't familiar, explain what the SAG Awards and why those are really important, especially to the actors themselves, because this is kind of the actors for the actors award, isn't it? Yeah, so this is basically the Screen Actors Guild voting on what they thought were the best performances in TV and movies over the last year. Uh, it's interesting because it started out in the uh, sort of like uh, early to mid 90s. This it was supposed to be kind of just this thing between the peers voting for one another. But what's happened to it is that it's become one of the most important um, stops to the Oscars because only four times in the nearly 30 years that SAG has been around has a movie that gone on to win Best Picture not been nominated uh, for SAG Ensemble for Motion Picture. And over half of the time that a movie has won SAG Ensemble for uh, Motion Picture, that movie has gone on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. So it's, it's, it's not only just about the actors voting for themselves, um, it's also, a sign of what is the movie that's contending for the Oscars, which usually happened about a week or two weeks after the SAGs. What is the movie that the acting branch, which is the biggest branch in the Academy, seems to be getting behind? And it's here where we saw movies like Parasite, um, Coda last year, or Spotlight from a couple years ago. It's here where they started to really make their move for that best picture win. Um, so it, it's turned out to be a very important stop on the way to the Oscars. Right. What's happening this year, of course, is we look like we got a juggernaut on our hands. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once has once again mopped up absolutely everything. You know, it, it's almost to the point of just penciling stuff in at this point. But th this is about as big as a favorite as we've seen in a while. There, it's winning everything. It's sweeping all the acting awards. This is just this is more than just a trend line, and th this is just the movie of this season. It's it's starting to look that way, and this is it's interesting because the last time that I was here with you, I was talking about how concerned I was for the film's chances because of. Uh, the front runner uh, in this era since they've expanded the ballot and started doing preferential ballot voting for best picture has not had the greatest record. But one of the things that I noticed because I decided I decided let me look at all of the uh, all of the winner um, with, excuse me the the front runners that have gone on to slip up and not win best picture at the Oscars. Let me see the, where did they slip up? And one of the things that I noticed was. They didn't get that SAG Ensemble nomination. Even La La Land, which was probably our last really big, big, legit upset when that loss of Moonlight, even La La Land didn't get this that SAG Ensemble nomination. So getting that acting support is so massive. And the fact that Everything Everywhere was the front runner that could get that, and it was and and it pulls off the win at SAG. It, it pulled off the biggest win in SAG history because never in SAG history have they had a movie win three acting awards and then the ensemble. That's the first time that's ever happened. Then it went to the producers guild, which is historically very uh predictable what's gonna win best picture. 
And then it also won the director's guild beating out Spielberg, which every a lot of people thought Spielberg would win there. Um, and now it's the favorite this weekend to win the writer's guild. It's really looking like one of those movies that just everybody gets behind. It's re reminding me a lot of Birdman because it didn't do too hot at BAFTA, but that happened with Birdman. Birdman didn't do too hot at BAFTA, but the the industry just got behind it uh, through the guilds. And last night, this movie actually beat out movies like Avatar and Black Panther uh, for costume design at the Costume Guild. Now, it's not favored to win costumes at the Oscars, Elvis is, but it, it, I've been noticing that at these smaller, less talked about tech and craft skills it's been coming away with an award and i think this just speaks to the love that the industry has for this movie and it, it really is one of those situations where we don't really have a clear number two we and when that hap if when that happens that's when you get these juggernauts that just sweeps the season yeah Luis mendez mendez movie report joining us even inside that juggernaut though there was a surprise and it involved everything everywhere all at once. Jamie Lee Curtis pulled down a statue uh, in this. That surprised people. The cast seemed thrilled for her. She gave a really cool speech where she talked about being a nippo baby, the nepotism baby, which is a joke because that's generational. I don't know how many people now remember Tony Curtis was her dad, and he was a big star in his own right, but still. That was a surprise. So even inside of something like a favorite, you can still get some surprises like that. Yeah, and now the question is, can she pull off the Oscar? Because we were for some time we thought it was going to be Angela Bassett, but it really looks like it's going to be either Carrie Condon or uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And I mean, a lot of people were surprised. I wasn't because I actually was talking to some SAG sources, and they were giving me a heads up that Jamie Lee actually had a lot of support among the actors. And um, I, I. I it really is going to be interesting on Oscar night because if if Best Picture truly is locked up, if we're not going to see some epic upset there, um, the with the exception of maybe supporting actor Kihi Kwan pretty much has that locked up, um, the acting races are going to be really interesting. We have Brendan Fraser versus uh, Austin Butler. That's going to come down to the wire. We have Michelle Yeoh versus Kate Blanchett. That's going to come down to the wire. And now it looks like we're looking at Kerry Condon versus Jamie D. Curtis. And maybe, just maybe still Angela Bassett can still pull this off. So the acting races have become the most interesting ones this year. And this is the first time since, nine, since 2002 that we will not have one actor that has won at every single place. So that, that's going to be very interesting to see uh, on Oscar night. And, and I've, I've noticed is that whenever Best Picture seems to be locked up, the acting races seem to be more in the air, whereas when Best Picture seems to be more competitive, the acting races seem to be more locked up. So I think that's what we're going to be seeing this year. It's going to be all about the acting races being the tough ones to call. Yeah, Luis Mendez joining us. All right, in those acting races, one of those that was kind of a favorite, then people kind of talked themselves out of being a favorite. Brendan Fraser won a SAG award, so now he's back to being the favorite again. Look, this is actually a really good year for acting. You know, Banshees, everything, everywhere, all at once. There's a lot of really good acting. So, you know, I don't, even if the favorites don't win, I don't think there's anything like offensive in here. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis wins instead of Angela Bassett. Both of those are favorites of mine. 
Brendan Fraser winning, though, does this shift the narrative back to him being the favorite? I, I mean, I'm still going to go with Butler just because he does have the best picture contender, and they do historically love their biopics. The only thing is, is that every single time Fraser has had a chance to do a speech, he knocks it out of the park. And good speeches like that is how you can get that kind of support from voters. And another thing is that this is the first time in a long time that SAG is going to be the last thing on voters' mind until voting begins. Voting begins this Thursday and goes into the Tuesday following. And instead of BAFTA being the thing that's going to be on their mind, what's going to be on their mind is SAG. What's going to be on their mind is that massive celebration for everything everywhere and that Brandon Fraser gave a great speech. And that's going to be very interesting. Another thing is, is that I think actor this year is going to be linked to makeup, and it just so happens that the two movies battling for makeup are Elvis and the Whale. And it's going to, to me, um, probably when we find out what's one uh, makeup earlier in the night, that probably will be a tell on how actor is going to go. I'm still going to stick with Butler, but if you came from the future and told me that uh, Brendan Fraser is going to pull this off, I would not be surprised um, because he really has delivered some great speeches. And I think there's a lot of goodwill for him, especially when he wins. at when, Whenever anyone wins at SAG, you have to take it seriously because, again, you're talking about the biggest uh, branch of the academy um, showing you what they like. Uh, so it, it, it definitely has turned what I thought was going to be. He seemed to be fading, and now he really does have a shot to pull this off. Louis Mendez joining us. Here's the thing with the Brendan Fraser situation. These are human beings that do these votings. There's so much to that candidacy that is much more than just the whale, the film that he's being. There's the backstory. There's his history within. Look, the industry votes on the industry. That's how this stuff is. You know, we we have the running joke about they love to vote for movies about Hollywood. This is a story about Hollywood when you really think about it with Brendan Fraser. And it's a bad story that makes the industry look bad. And there's I don't know if guilt's the right word. You talk about how good he is at the podium. You talk about how good a moment it is when he wins these awards. These people voting on this as human beings, that stuff's got to play into it, doesn't it? Oh, of course. That's, and, and, and like I said, that's why I think it's so key that he's been knocking out of the park with his speeches. Um, and by the way, there's the same thing that helps Key Huey Kwan because he, he has his own amazing Hollywood-like story with his comeback. And then there's the narrative behind Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's going to have that narrative of the overdue factor. Um, and then for actress, you have this battle between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, who also has that veteran overdue factor. Uh, and you, whenever we get to read these anonymous ballots that they send out during between the end of voting period and Oscar um, night, you really do get a reminder of that even though these are industry voters, they 
think and act a lot like your casual person off the street might with their votes. And um, I think that Fraser's uh, speeches are helpful. I think that Kihui Kwan's narrative is helpful. I think Michelle Yeoh's narrative is helpful. Um, and I think it's why you see them going into Oscar. They're going to be going into Oscar morning right there in the race of win those acting awards. Luis Mendez joining us. Okay, let's get to some actual movies now. Uh, you went and saw Ant-Man and the Watch. That is currently dominating the box office. It's doing well. It's not setting the world on fire by Marvel standards. It's up around 300-some million as of the time of this recording. So it's not a failure. What was it actually like in the theater? Now, of course, you do screenings and stuff. So there's a difference between a screening audience and a regular audience. Take me in that, because this seems like one of those movies where people are almost waiting for the reaction to the movie more than the movie. Does that, is that a fair way to kind of put it? Because it's the first of the phase five, although I think the phases are a little overblown because I don't think they had a plan the last couple of years. But is that a fair way to put it? It feels like people were almost waiting for the reaction to this movie more than the movie itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there was a certain point there during the marking where it kind of felt like everybody just made the decision that this was this wasn't going to be one of the highlight MCU movies and this is probably going to be another filler film um <clears throat> I will say that I was not able to go to a screening of this movie uh I ended up having some bad luck that week but so I was able to see it with a crowd I will tell you this I think these I think the casual viewer still enjoys these Marvel films more than the typical critic. I think a lot of critics that I've talked to and I go to these screenings with, they're starting to get tired. I think they've reached Marvel fatigue. I get the sense that they've reached Marvel fatigue. I don't know if the audiences have large tech necessarily have, but I do think that the excitement is not the way that it used to. Um, a lot of people, when they were walking out of the movie with me, they were a lot of casuals were basically saying it was all right, and I and I, which was my personal feeling on the movie. It's I, I think a lot of people, you have critics who are getting fatigued with the Marvel uh, films, especially after last year where we saw Top Gun, Avatar, everything everywhere. These genre movies that showed you you don't have to be a superhero film to give the audiences what they want. I think the the bar has been raised so high and everybody knows about the Marvel formula where you kind of already know certain things that are gonna happen when you go see any MCU movie. Um, and I think the, the, the critics have just gotten fatigued with it. I think audiences aren't as excited about it. They're still going to see the movies, but they're walking away going, it was all right. They're not necessarily like, talking about it over the water cooler and having theories like they used to before, you know, the Infinity Saga was over. Um, I will say that I, 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 I have a little bit of hope because they do finally have direction now with Jonathan Majors not playing this Kang character who seems to be the new big bad. But even so, I, I really think that Marvel's going to have to start stepping up their game because we already got news that this second weekend was one of the biggest drops for a marvel film uh and you're right it's not going to be like some box office failure but these movies used to be like automatic billion dollar makers and now they're not and i think that's saying something and if they don't 
control that as the years go by, you're going to start to see that support go down because that's exactly what we saw back when the Transformers movies were the ones that owned the box office. Eventually, those movies started to kind of depreciate in value and people just stopped going. Uh, well, they didn't stop going to them, but they stopped being the juggernauts at the box office that they used to be. And that's the problem that the MCU wants to avoid. Lewis Mendez joining us. Mendez Movie Report on Substack. Make sure you subscribe to that. I think the formula is the problem. This is the classic thing of what made you successful ends up turning into your albatross eventually if you don't shake it up. Look, I know the Marvel formula before I watch it because my kids have grown up in the Marvel era. They watch all of these things. Look, sarcastic humor, you know, it's very much, and people don't probably think of it this way, but if you've done any kind of theater or read literature, this is the very classic formula. You know, you have the hero, good things happen, then you have the dark night of the soul, and then you pull it all together at the end and you tease whatever's coming next. I mean, that goes all the way back to Shakespeare, goes all the way back to Greek theater. That's a classic formula. But the way Marvel's doing it, CGI heavy, um, lots of sarcastic humor. We know all the characters. You know, some of these characters are getting up into the double digits in movie appearances now. Do they need to shake something up? Do they need to do something that's not formulaic to get people's attention? Or maybe more importantly, just to show they can do something different here? I think they, <coughs> excuse me, I think they need to. Um, because again you're definitely seeing that fatigue with critics they have now had two movies that are now rotted on rotten tomatoes which that used to be seen as something that you would never see from marvel um audiences aren't as excited anymore even though they're still showing up um we got guardians of the galaxy volume three uh james gunner does a good job of mixing it up and making that kind of be a little bit different from the formula even though the guardians are comedic um but they can't rely on him all the time obviously and after that we've got titles that i don't think any of them are necessarily going to be shaking up how these movies come off um and uh yeah I, 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 the another problem is that when you're making a lot of money, it's hard to convince you to change. But if again, if they do not get ahead of this, they're going to. What's going to happen to them is what happened to the Transformers movie franchise when that uh, do, used to dominate so much. And I, it's it's going to be interesting because Bob Iger's back, and 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 Iger's definitely going to be having his ideas of that this this franchise is supposed to be making them billions of dollars uh they, i mean this is the same guy who infamously got frustrated when last jedi didn't make as much money as uh force awakens so uh it's, it's gonna be interesting to see if guardians 3 also doesn't do too hot at the box office if they go through another year without a marvel movie hitting a billion uh if Iger might start shaking things up
Yeah, and this uh, Luis Mendez joining us. It's interesting when you talk about the heads of the studios and their roles, especially Iger coming back. Disney's making some; they're taking some big swings right now on some of the stuff they're doing. I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but something like Ant Man, I don't want to do my CGI rant again because we everybody's already heard it by now. I don't like CGI; I can't stand it. But I think part of the Marvel formula problem is also the CGI issue. Some folks have is you literally can do anything you want in film now. There's no limits with the way the CGI technology is. It's not like back in the 30s where people were writing about, well, we'd love to do this stuff, but we can't do it. You can do anything you want through CGI now. The problem with that is narrative-wise, storytelling-wise, there's no guardrails anymore on what you can do. And if you shoot real high without some real defined guardrails, you start missing narratively and story-wise, and it just you lose the suspension of disbelief that's so important when you're watching a movie, or at least it's important to me. Somewhere in there for about 30 seconds, I got to forget I'm watching a movie to be a great movie. That's just one of my standards. Is that part of the problem with something like the Marvel formula or something else is CGI and the technology, and not just CGI, the camera stuff, like the stuff we saw with Top Gun Maverick, the stuff we saw in Everything Everywhere All at Once and the way they edited it and shot it and cut it. There's so much technology that's advancing filmmaking. They've kind of forgot you still got to have guardrails to leave the human element in there. Well, and, and I think the problem with the MCU especially is that it does – we've heard all these stories about how they rush their cgi uh and they they work these visual effects people to death um with who by the way are t tend to be underpaid um we like to make comments about how hollywood are a bunch of billionaires who give themselves gold statues but we forget that the people who are designing costumes designing sets and the visual effects people are really don't get paid that much and the, the problem is is that if if you look at movies like a top gun if you look at movies like a even an avatar their special effects they they take their time with that and to the point that it's so it's hard to know at times to realize what cgi or not like even avatar like obviously you have the motion capture with the navis and stuff like that but the the environments around them you don't know what cgi or not um Top Gun, I was watching this thing about uh, the, the, the visual effects presentation that they gave to the Academy uh, when they were under consideration for a nomination. And it, it really is amazing just how much of that movie actually is visual effects and people don't know it. Yes, there's, a, there's plenty of practical in that movie and they actually shot stuff in the planes and stuff. But it goes to show you that if you put in, if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to be patient, you can make this. You can make CGI look realistic, and, and and but the problem is, is that with these MCU movies, they're rushing them to the point that the, this and they're so CGI heavy that basically everyone and their mom knows what isn't real in the movie. Like in the Quantum Mania, the new Ant Man movie isn't basically nothing but CGI all over the place, and you know that it's CGI all over the place. And I think that, uh, I mean, it, it's, it is one of the reasons that you're starting to see Marvel fatigue starting to creep in. Because if you go back to the Winter Soldier, uh, for instance, that was a movie that had plenty of practical effects. 
visual effects that you didn't really notice that much. That was very grounded. And I think the MCU, if they go back to something like that, it would help them a lot more than just continuing to have CGI all over the place. And Louis Mendez joining us. All right. One reason I like talking movies with you is you don't just watch the movies and rate them. You also understand the business side of it. You already mentioned Iger coming back to Disney. That's going to be a very big theme this year. Disney is clearly going to be changing course and changing how they do things. That's going to have an effect on everything else because Disney's not just a big box office draw. They're also a huge in the streaming market with Disney+. Plus. The new numbers have come out now. Netflix is still the biggest of the video streamers. Amazon Prime, then Disney, then Apple. You know, you go on down the list. You got, you know, HBO Max, Peacock. HBO Max may be changing because Discovery, Warner Brothers is up for sale. There's a lot of moving parts to media consumption right now. But the one that always catches me because, and this is where being a parent of teens and young adults really comes in. Netflix is the largest with around 2 million, 200 million subscribers, right? And they're coming down a little bit. YouTube has 2 billion. I don't know that we discuss enough in entertainment, whether it's movies or just clips of stuff or whatever, how much YouTube changed everything. Because now, like even somebody wants to watch a movie, a lot of times they YouTube it first. Oh, can I find the clips on movie? Or I just want to see this one part of this movie. Two billion is so much bigger than the 200 million of a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. I'm not sure us, the adults, realize the next generation, they go to YouTube for everything. Disney's openly talking about this. Some of the other streamers are talking about this. I think this is something we really need to pay attention to. That's a generational shift. Everybody's expecting not only non-commercials, but they want their stuff now. They want it in small bites, and they want it immediately. Yeah, and and I think that's why you see see uh, people not necessarily like watch stuff live. They go back and want to watch the highlights, if anything. Uh, I also think that's why you're seeing Netflix now starting to get into the game of actual live streaming events, especially with this partnership that they now have with with SAG and that they're going to start hosting the awards. Um, YouTube hosted SAG this year because Netflix is still trying to get that together, and they were able to get a million people to tune in, even without not much marketing and uh, pretty last second telling people that they were going to be on YouTube this year. And um, I, I, I think the, the thing is, is that because everything has become very uh, a la carte and on demand, YouTube is so perfect for that, where there's you could watch freaking 40 minute documentaries on there uh, and you could watch five minute clips. Uh, I can tell you that I use YouTube a lot to help me get through my work day. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, since Netflix is getting into the streaming uh, game, not to mention that they've been playing around a little bit, but getting into the shorts as well, are we going to start seeing the streamers say, you know what, how can we get in on this as well? Uh, I mean, I think they have a mountain to climb because the thing that YouTube has is that they basically, YouTube has basically made their name what, YouTube is all about with the with the small clips and stuff. You say YouTube. You don't think about any other video hosting sites out there, which there are plenty, but nobody thinks about them. Um, but it'll be it will be interesting to see if the if the industry gets involved, especially now when you see things like Netflix get involved. And I I mean Disney Plus hosted the um 
the, the Oscar nominations uh, to be available to watch live on there. So I wouldn't be too surprised if sometime in the next five years we start to see some integration with and trying to do things that YouTube also does. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. All right, something fun. You were tweeting about it. What was Thanos cooking in that pot right before Thor took his head off? I know it's a spoiler, but if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. What was Thanos cooking in that pot? Y'all were having some fun on uh, social media with this. Obviously, he was making you a birthday cake for your big birthday slash Oscar weekend coming up. But what is it you think that the uh, destroyer of half of all life in the galaxy was cooking up in the pot? I always thought it was soup. I mean, and, and to me, it seemed like he, he was making a stew. Uh, I I mean, I got to tell you, one of these days I need to hunt down the video that created that meme because I want to know how much time they spent trying to figure out what was in disguise, uh, uh, what this guy was cooking because it was the last thing I was thinking about when I was watching the movie for the first time. Yeah, that's kind of the cool thing. You can go back and check these things out. Luis Mendez, he's the observer of movies so that we don't have to. I can just ask him about it and he can tell me about it. We're going to keep talking about this stuff, man, especially CG. Look, you said it was A-Man the Wasp. It's CGI wall to wall. So I was like, nope, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not watching that one. I'll watch it when the kids watch it at the house, stuff like that. These issues will continue. And, of course, Oscar season coming up. We'll talk to you about that. Let folks know where they can follow you, how they can keep up with the Mendez movie report, which is great. I read it all the time. And until we get you back on the program again, how they can keep up with you, my friend. Uh, Mendes Movie Report at Substack.com. I'm also available on YouTube, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, and if anybody out there has a letterbox under Mendes Movie RPT, I am happy to say that I finally got a YouTube video up where I was talking about uh, the best picture race. I do plan to be doing uh, more videos on there, but uh, uh, I definitely will be writing for Ordinary Time soon, too, because the uh, final Oscar analysis is going to be due soon. It will be. We're happy to have you. Check out his YouTube. We're going to keep having him on here because he's really good at this stuff. Luis Mendez, thanks for the time, my friend. Hey, uh, always happy to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.